Well, hello everyone, and welcome back to Popcorn. This is my podcast, wherein I discuss things related to pop culture, mostly movies, books, and TV shows. My name is Steve, and I'm glad you're here. If you're finding reasons to keep coming back, then I'll find them too. I'd like to welcome my newest set of listeners. My hosting service at Anchor tells me that I have new listeners in Columbus and Loveland, Ohio, listeners in Clifton, New Jersey, Brooklyn, New York, Scott Depot, West Virginia, and new listeners in the UK as well. Welcome. I am delighted that you're all here. I'd like to tell you a little something about myself that I haven't really talked about before. Years ago, when I was in university, I trained as a broadcast announcer for radio. I had dreams of being a DJ or an announcer of some kind, but when I graduated, I quickly learned that jobs in that field are hard to come by. They don't initially pay that well, and most entry-level positions in radio are likely to start out with tiny little radio stations that are far away from major urban centers. Since I got married and started having kids fairly soon after graduating, I didn't have the luxury of spending a lot of time looking for my dream job in radio, so I took what I could find and ended up spending quite a few years in telephone call centers. A communications job, to be sure, but not the one I had hoped I would find myself in. So I had basically put my dream of working in radio aside. I think perhaps that I wasn't ambitious enough either. What I enjoyed most about working in radio when I was a student was the late night shifts alone in the control room with just me and the microphone and a huge stack of CDs. I don't even think radio stations use CDs for music anymore. And if you don't think that makes me sound old, let me tell you this. I was also trained to use reel-to-reel tape players, tape decks, and record players. Digital audio tapes were brand new technology when I was starting out and no one had even heard of MP3s in those days. I don't think they had even been invented yet when I graduated in 1995. I didn't choose the night shift, but I ended up working six to midnight, six days a week anyway. I was the night guy. The station went off the air at midnight, and there was usually no one else in the station at that time. I'd turn the lights off and sit alone in the dark, reading news copy by the light of the electronic equipment, CD players, DAT players, and one bulky old cart player I used for some short jingles. The cart, for those who don't know, was the predecessor of the 8-track tape. It looked and functioned very much like an 8-track, using a continuous loop tape. That continuous loop was convenient for radio announcers and meant that a cart never had to be rewound and was always ready to play as soon as it had been finished. I got to be so well known as the night guy that once, upon showing up at 10 in the morning for a staff meeting, one of my fellow students jokingly asked me, What are you doing here? Don't you turn to dust if you come out in the light of day? Well, having an ambition to sit alone in the dark doesn't really make people want to hire you, so I had to go further afield to find work and left my dreams of broadcasting behind, but the love of speaking, announcing, and recording never really left me. I suppose that's the main reason why I eventually ended up here, sitting at my desk upstairs in my house, alone in the dark, just me and my Onikuma K19 gaming headset, reading and recording text by the light of my monitor or my phone, listening to the sound of the ceiling fan squeaking rhythmically behind me. I'd like to earnestly invite anyone who's interested to write me if they have any ideas for episodes, things that they'd like to hear in the program, movies they're interested in, books that they've read that they'd like to hear me talk about, and the like. 
My email address is sdrost01 at gmail.com. I'm not just blowing smoke on this either. I would be absolutely thrilled to hear from any of you and might even read any email sent to me on the program. I have kind of a special episode prepared today. I know that last time I said I was going to talk about religious themes in Blade Runner, and I definitely will do that today. But I also have something kind of cool to share today, and it's thanks to my amazing wife that I'm able to do this. She located in a thrift store a copy of Philip K. Dick's book, Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep?, which, as we all know, is the book that the Blade Runner movie is based on. I went through it like a hot knife through butter, and am now on my second reading of it, trying to go a little slower so I can absorb a little more of it. Uh, It's hard to go slow while I'm reading something (laughs) like this that I've thought about for years, but was never really sure where to find a copy of the book. Trying to slow myself down, absorb a little more of it, like I said. So I'm going to spend at least a part of today's program talking about that as well. Now, I know I led up to this with a bit of a promise that I would talk about religious imagery, but I was a little disappointed to find out after all this time that there simply isn't as much there as I thought there might be in the first place. I guess the first thing that comes to mind when I think of religious imagery in this movie is the scene in which Roy drives a nail through the palm of his hand, ultimately for the purpose of saving Deckard. It's pretty clear that this is a reference to the crucifixion of Christ. And as Roy dies only a few moments after doing this, it's a pretty clear and basic analogy. But the problem is that I assumed that if there was at least one such image in the movie, it would probably hit us over the head with more, and that didn't really happen. I went back through the film another time, hoping that with the idea in mind of hunting for these images, some would jump out at me, but they didn't really do that. But rather than give up on the idea, which I still believe has some merit, I probed a little deeper and went online to look for support for this idea. One of the things I found was the fact that there is a specific Wikipedia article that's actually called Themes in Blade Runner. And that article refers to the nail in Roy's hand, as I've mentioned, but there are a couple of other things as well. I personally believe that the inclusion of Zora's bullet wounds is a religious symbol because they're placed in roughly the same area as an angel's wings might be, is reaching a little bit, but I suppose one could make a case for this idea. I'm just, I'm not really a huge fan of it myself. Aside from the obvious fact that Zora was no angel, she was an exotic dancer, she also had absolutely no compunctions about trying to kill Deckard at the first available opportunity, The idea that the placement of the bullet wounds was meant to approximate the appearance of wings seems a little far-fetched. The same goes for the idea of Roy as an angel, simply because of the fact that he paraphrases a William Blake poem that happens to mention angels. Sure, there's a possibility that the angels in the poem could be a representation of the replicants themselves, but it's a specious comparison, and one that I don't think holds a lot of weight. There's also the idea that the replicants came from the sky, from an off-world colony. So they're like fallen angels, I guess. And I guess that idea holds a little bit more value because they physically have come down in the way that you might expect fallen angels to if they fall from heaven. Um, But they're also symbolically fallen in that they're all um, morally corrupted characters and there is a need for someone to correct that wrong. 
But in that analogy, I don't know what position Deckard would hold. Near the end of the movie, Roy and Deckard are effectively pursuing each other. Deckard wants to kill Roy, simply because he's being paid to, but Roy's motivations are equally plain and simple. Roy wants to kill Deckard, because Deckard wants to kill him. Roy's acting at least partly out of a sense of sheer savage, preemptive self-defense. He's also acting out of a sense of vengeance, of course, for the deaths of Zora and Pris. I guess he's taking revenge for Leon's death, too, but it's significant to me that he doesn't mention Leon's name when he breaks Deckard's fingers. Only the two females. Roy doesn't speak much with Leon during the movie, and when he does, it seems to be with a certain amount of contempt. Like when he asks Leon scornfully whether he was able to get his precious photos from the hotel room. So it's probably safe to say he doesn't mourn Leon's death much. Another way of looking at this is in light of the fact that it wasn't Deckard who pulled the trigger on Leon, it was Rachel. But here's an interesting idea. Roy breaks two fingers. One for Zora and one for Pris. Might there not be a reflection of Exodus 21 here? An eye for an eye? One might argue that it's a simple picture of revenge and that there's no need for a biblical reference, but if that's the case, why would Roy's idea of revenge be so specific? And when all is said and done, he doesn't end up killing Deckard. It's almost as though he's accomplished his mission of revenge with the breaking of the fingers. The simple breaking of the bones in return for the deaths of his loved ones, such as they are, is like a form of substitutionary atonement a symbolic representation of the actual act of revenge. And when you think about it this way, it's not surprising at all that he doesn't kill Deckard. He may still harbor a base need to kill for survival, but one might be able to say that he and Deckard can't really exist in the same universe since Deckard's entire purpose is to make sure that Roy dies. But in as far as it relates to his feelings about Pris and Zora, he just really doesn't need to anymore. Let's go back to that scene with the nail then. Here's the basic premise of the scene. Roy is dying because he has reached the end of his four-year lifespan. In fact, his body has started to betray him. There's no real explanation as to why his fingernails might be turning black at this point, but my assumption is that it has something to do with his impending death, which seems to be beginning with his extremities giving up. Roy is desperate to finish what he started and will do anything to reach his goal. There's also no explanation for why driving a nail into his hand would delay this happening, but it's implied that this is the case. At any rate, it's not a task he undertakes lightly. He's clearly in a great deal of pain as it happens, and of course it's one of the more gruesome close-ups in the movie, as you can see the point of the nail tenting his skin for a second before it comes through. Great special effects. Anyway, it's a bit of a blunt comparison. One might argue that a nail through the hand finds a parallel in the biblical story of Christ's crucifixion. It's not complex. Roy even looks a little bit like Jesus at this point. He's stripped off his outer garments and appears to be wearing only a loincloth. And the motivation roughly follows as well, though that isn't as easy to see before the fact. Roy is crucified so that Deckard can be set free. Roy loses his own life at the moment that Deckard regains his. In the work print release, which has the voiceover track, Deckard makes a bit of a clumsy attempt to explain it when he suggests that perhaps in Roy's final moments he found all life to be precious, not just his own, but Deckard's as well. There also seems to be a spiritual parallel in the image of the dove that Roy releases at the moment of his death. In both theology and literature, 
Birds such as doves are a well-recognized symbol of the spirit or the soul, and the moment that the bird flutters away seems to be meant to show Roy's own soul being released. I say seems to be, because I don't know if it was necessarily Ridley Scott's intent to show such overt religious symbolism, but one of the delightful things about being a Christian and studying theology is the absolute right and freedom to read spiritualism into just about anything we like, even if it's not intended that way. So I choose to believe that the dove is a symbol of Roy's soul. Your mileage may vary. Well, let's talk about the book. Let's talk about Mercerism. The best explanation of Mercerism is that it is a technology-based religion in which its adherents use something called an empathy box to link them simultaneously to a virtual reality of collective suffering centered on a martyr-like character, Wilbur Mercer, who eternally climbs up a hill while being hit with crashing stones. Acquiring high-status animal pets and linking into empathy boxes appear to be the only two ways characters in the story strive for existential fulfillment. Now, by comparison to this, there's actually very little overt religion in the movie. There's the passive existence of religion in the sense that the things that I've already spoken of today could be considered religious, but there's no mention of overt prayer life or the existence of a community of faith or people who could be considered adherents to a higher power. There are no priests or religious institutions. Although there are a number of specific and concrete differences between the book and the movie, this is one of the most noticeable ones. The book leans heavily into the ideas of Mercerism. It's similar to biblical teachings about the unity of Christ and the church, but I note that there isn't a lot of depth to Mercerism. It's similar to Christianity in that Christians believe that they are one with Christ. There is a parallel of this in the story, where the characters use the theological processes of Mercerism, such as they are, to connect with Mercer. Characters fuse with the prophet by praying or showing some sort of worship through the empathy box. In the real world, religion can naturally exist by itself, but in the novel, Mercerism relies on advanced technology in the form of the empathy box. Now, if you were to ask me, one of the most telling things about Mercerism is that it doesn't really hold up under scrutiny, whereas Christianity does. Someone once told me that he was a Christian because Christianity offered a more comprehensive and robust framework for belief than any other system that he had tried. Christianity, he explained, provides a coherent worldview, and he rejected any religion that conflicted with widely accepted science. Christianity acknowledges that human beings are flawed. Since he explained he knows this to be true, he rejected any religion that insists its adherents need to perfectly obey a set of rules. Additionally, Christianity answers a deep spiritual need for comfort, love, peace, and joy. Now, while these criteria could be true of other faiths, he said he was unwilling to walk away from God on the off chance that there might be another path open to him. Now, I know that many secularists will scoff at the assertion that Christianity holds up under scrutiny, arguing that there's no basis, in fact, for such a claim, and that, in fact, the opposite is probably true. But it's also true that a fictional system like Mercerism pales by comparison to Christianity. And unfortunately, such a comparison reveals the shortcomings of the system of Mercerism itself. A system like Mercerism, which provides no spiritual comfort, no framework for belief, and a worldview that is not comprehensive, 
would not be one that would hold up under demanding scrutiny. Christianity is a robust structure that provides answers to complex questions. Mercerism is not. Christianity rigorously examines questions of existence and belief. Mercerism is an invented religion and not a very good one at that. It's predicated on a simple theory that one figure, Mercer, is the object of people's derision and so they interact with him negatively in order to make themselves feel better about their own shortcomings and failures. But if I've failed to describe Mercerism accurately, it's because it doesn't lend itself to being described in any great amount of detail. It doesn't provide for a solid doctrine of salvation, and what it does provide doesn't offer much in the way of explanation for its structures. The religion is based around the idea that empathy is mankind's quintessential quality. Now, although empathy isn't in and of itself an unworthy philosophical ideal, a religion that focuses itself around the quintessential qualities of its adherents, rather than seeking to have its adherents follow a quality of something outside themselves, something that is higher or better than themselves, ultimately tends toward a quality of hollowness or emptiness. Mercerism says, observe Wilbur Mercer. He is one who suffers and experiencing empathy with his suffering will be your salvation. But it doesn't really make clear how this will be accomplished. Christianity says, be perfect as Christ is perfect. And for those who would criticize that particular doctrine, of course, it's not a call for everyone to automatically make themselves sinless, because that, of course, as we all know, isn't feasible. But rather, it's a call to be continually conformed to the image of Christ, the image of the perfect God. In our journey here on this earthly life, this is our calling. Make ourselves like the image of Christ. In Mercerism, the calling is ostensibly to empathy, but the message that comes through by reading between the lines of the practice is, be glad you're not like this guy whose journey is never ending and who has people perpetually throwing rocks at him. There's no attainable objective in Mercerism. I kept waiting for an explanation of the goal of Wilbur Mercer, but none was forthcoming. There's a kind of a strange phenomenon that sometimes takes place when writing for the screen. A few years ago, I tried my hand at writing a short teleplay, solely for the purpose of seeing if I could. I took an obscure short story from one of my college English texts and tried to work it into a screenplay as best I could. I had no experience with writing screenplays, and I didn't expect it to be a simple process. I just wanted to see what it would be like. One of the things I discovered almost immediately is that writing for the screen forces you to take a closer look at what an audience might find credible and what simply can't be translated to the screen. I'm not talking about the normal moment-to-moment -moment flow of the action or describing the details of what the characters are wearing. These are details that I've learned that the director is responsible for, not the screenwriter. You can't necessarily have a character move from point A to point C without at least making some kind of passing reference to point B in the process. But you can do this kind of thing in writing for the page. It's the sort of detail that the subconscious mind automatically fills in. The mind takes on the role of the director. Now in that vein, it seems that maybe Hampton Fancher and David Peoples, who wrote the screenplay for the movie, realized the shortcomings of the philosophy of mercerism. More likely what happened was that they saw the difficulties in making a religion that really wasn't tenable 
a reality for the screen and just left it out entirely. I thought of this especially when the character of Mercer in the book reveals himself to be a fraud. At that point, personally, if I had been the screenwriter, I would have thrown up my hands and said, forget it. This is a story all on its own that doesn't really affect what we're going for in the screenplay, and to be honest, it's not even all that interesting. Well, that about covers religion in the book and the movie. The book itself is not quite as satisfying as I had hoped it would be. It's certainly quite a different story than the one told in the movie. The character of Deckard is subtly different. He's married, for one thing. His wife hasn't left him, and although by the end of the book one can be forgiven for thinking that she might at any moment, she chooses not to. It has an effect on the reader's perception of the character, particularly for those readers who are used to seeing the burned-out alcoholic of the film, who is divorced and solitary. It also somewhat changes the perception of Deckard's relationship with Rachel. In the movie, I found that his relationship with her was very strange. It almost seems based on a foundation of coercion, or an unhealthy tendency toward dominance and submission. I say unhealthy specifically because there are certain relationship types and tropes both in fiction and in the real world that thrive on this type of power dynamic and there's nothing wrong with that in my opinion so long as both parties in the relationship are happy with the way the power dynamic proceeds. But Deckard's relationship with Rachel in the movie almost feels as though he is a person who is taking advantage of her virtual inexperience with gender relations. She is naive, yes, there's nothing unusual or immoral about that. But Deckard seems to push her in a strange way into the relationship with him. And there's at least one scene when Deckard orders Rachel to tell him to kiss her, in which feminists, and I use that word with as much positive connotation as I can possibly muster, will be shaking their heads and clucking their tongues. It's one thing for Rachel to feel as though her place in that power dynamic is as the submissive, gladly allowing Decker to take the dominant role, but it doesn't really feel as though she gives into that role willingly. It's more as though she's forced into it against her will, and it comes across a little ugly and shocking. That relationship in the book is quite a bit different. Rachel has agency, the capacity to act independently and to make her own free choices. She seizes the upper hand in the power dynamic. Deckard himself isn't all that different from his character in the movie, but when he ends up sleeping with Rachel, it's because she's taken the initiative to make this happen. There's none of the shrinking violet in her as there is in the movie, and most noticeably, none of the puritanical prudishness she exhibits in the movie when Deckard phones her and tells her to come to Taffy Lewis's bar. I don't think so, Mr. Deckard. That's not my kind of place. All right, that's all I've got for today. But again, I would love to hear what your thoughts are on these matters. Email me. Let me know that you're out there and alive and listening. Next episode, I'm going to muse a little about something that I've been turning over in my head for many years now. It's a question that a lot of people wiser than me have been asking for a long time. Can a Christian enjoy things like Stephen King? Horror movies, science fiction, supernatural thrillers. Some may say it's weird that a Christian might enjoy reading Stephen King. I say that it's absolutely not weird at all. In fact, it makes perfect sense. Until next time.